Can I start by saying that it is a great pleasure for me to be delivering the prestigious Benedict XVI lecture uh, this year. Politicians like to talking sound bites and we like to deliver speeches which are short and sharp, but this is a lecture and I'm told that I can take my time with this. I was uh, looking at uh, the one that the chief rabbi delivered, I think two years ago now, and it was some 5,000 words. I can tell you that mine is about two and a half thousand, so hopefully uh, I will try and and, uh, finish slightly quicker than the last one. Uh, Let me also start by paying tribute to His Grace the Archbishop of uh, Westminster, someone that I'm proud to say is a very good friend. Uh, On paper, ours looks like an unlikely friendship. We do, after all, come at things from opposing sides. That's opposing sides of the Pennines. But I have uh, overcome that and over time become a great admirer of the Archbishop and what he brings to his role. A very deep and thoughtful spirituality, a commitment to society's neediest and an open and affinity with other faiths and a scouse warmth and honesty which endears him to whoever he meets, be they Christian or Muslim, northern or southern, of a faith or no faith. This church and this congregation are very lucky to have him. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this isn't the Vincent lecture, it's the Benedict lecture. And I will take... Uh, but I will take um, any opportunity to reinstate my uh, admiration uh, for, for, for you, Vincent. Can I also take this opportunity to state my restate my deep admiration uh, for the Pope Emeritus? Meeting the Holy Father is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I've had that once-in-a-lifetime experience twice. First in Twickenham in September 2010, during his, his historic visit to Britain. At the time, I was chairman of the Conservative Party, but he described me to the Prime Minister as the Minister for God. Uh, And that was, I suppose, immensely uh, far-sighted because it was about a year after that that the Prime Minister made me the Minister for Faith. Uh, Or maybe David Cameron simply felt that he was carrying out the instructions of the Holy Father when he appointed or maybe even anointed me. (laughs) Pope Benedict's visit that year was a whirlwind of goodwill and festivity. It stretched the length and breadth of this country and touched life after life. Many of you were there... Many of you helped make it happen, and each of you played your part in history. And after the success of that visit, I made it my mission to organise the return visit, which was a pretty daunting task. There wasn't quite the same adoring crowds when my cabinet colleagues and I turned up in St Peter's Square, and there certainly wasn't anything so flash as a Popemobile. But leading the UK ministerial delegation to the Vatican the largest in history in February of 2012, continued to strengthen a friendship between states and between faiths, which had been so deeply cemented during the papal visit. And after my speech at the Pontifical Ecclesiastical Academy, we were granted a private audience with the Holy Father, and it was an immense honour. And it was then during our conversation that he urged me to continue making the case for faith. So as this is the Benedict Lecture, I ought to carry out those wishes. And today I want to make a very specific case for faith, the case for interfaith. Of course, there is nowhere more appropriate than being surrounded by friends of all beliefs and all denominations, and with the backdrop of Pope Benedict's papacy. The two Benedict Lectures so far have been delivered 
not by Catholics nor Christians even, but by former chief rabbi Lord Sachs, a Jew, and now by me, a Muslim. And that, I think, is very fitting. Because Pope Benedict drove forward a vision for interfaith dialogue and its practical application. Now, I've long been a champion of interfaith dialogue, progressing to interfaith action. For me, it is my belief that we will only be able to confront the biggest challenges we face if all faiths come together. Interfaith can no longer be about a cup of tea and a samosa in a drafty church hall between a local vicar and a local imam. But we need to move from the niceties to the necessities, to turn the common word between faiths into united action. This is not optional, it is imperative if we are to tackle some of the biggest problems that blight our world. So I want to look at some of those challenges and how interfaith action might provide an answer. Firstly, the persecution of religious minorities overseas. Secondly, the discrimination and hatred faced by faiths here in Britain. And thirdly, building a stronger society from the bottom up. Why is interfaith action more powerful then when one faith, when one faith goes it alone? It's not only because we have strength in numbers or because two heads are better than one, but because it proves that they are not motivated by self-interest, but by defending everyone's interests. And as I argued during a speech in Washington last month, this approach is vital if we are to tackle one particular problem, the persecution of Christians and religious minorities abroad. In various parts of the world, people are being discriminated against, driven out, or even murdered simply because of their faith. Like other minorities which have been persecuted for years, they need protection from the states, from militant groups, even from individuals who single them out. And we need an international response to what I believe has become a global crisis. But this requires not only Christians speaking up for Christians, or Muslims for Muslims, or any faith for its co-religionists, it requires everyone to speak out against intolerance and injustice, to speak out and stand up for those who come under attack. Because if our response is sectarian, then that actually reinforces the divisions. So if a bomb goes off in a Pakistani church, that shouldn't just reverberate through Christian communities, it should stir all of us. We should be inspired by the teachings of Islam, which tell you that your fellow man is your brother, either your brother in faith or your brother in humanity. And we should be guided by the example of the Good Samaritan, who wouldn't have stopped to question the faith of the robbed, beaten man before he helped him. He helped him regardless. And this puts me in mind of the priest Father Alec Reed, who sadly passed away ten days ago. The image of the redemptionist priest bravely coming to the aid of two soldiers who had been murdered by the IRA is one of the enduring images of the Troubles. That brave man of God wasn't driven by sectarian loyalties in his action. He was motivated by a duty to his fellow man. For this and for his crucial part in the Northern Ireland priest process, he will always be remembered and forever, forever remain a symbol for compassion and bravery, regardless of politics or faith. 
And that same principle applies when we confront hatred and intolerance in our own country. And that is my second reason for backing this interfaith imperative. Sometimes the most powerful voices come from other communities. When Muslim communities were under attack after the retaliation of the horrific murder of Drummer Lee Rigby on our streets, some of the most powerful words came from a Christian, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, when he said, we want you to know, when he assured British Muslims, we want you to know that we stand with you. We will do so privately and publicly. We will do so persistently and I pray in the grace of God, persuasively. And it reminded me of the fact that some of the greatest critics of Christian persecution are often those of other faith. For example, the former Chief Rabbi Lord Sachs deemed the international situation of Christian persecution a human tragedy that is going almost unmarked, the religious equivalent of ethnic cleansing. This point was hammered home recently during a debate in the House of Lords a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the UK Independence Party's Lord Pearson decided to ask the not very subtle question, what is the basis for the Prime Minister's statement that there is nothing in Islam which justifies acts of terror? And what was most powerful about the response he received was not so much what was said, although of course he was enlightened and educated about the, about the faith of Islam by my colleagues, it was the fact that noble lords of all faiths were united in their condemnation of, of his implication. And the most scathing attack came from a man of the church, the Bishop of Birmingham, and that was followed by the fluency of a peer of Jewish background, Lord Treesman. And in that debate, we were all, all of us except Lord Pearson, singing from the same hymn sheet saying that there is nothing within our faiths that justifies terrorism and arguing that to hold co-religionists responsible for the actions of a minority, a minority who hijack and betray a faith, and to suggest that co-religionists should become apologists for this evil minority is simply not acceptable. And this was a great example of people of different faiths not just talking together but acting together and acting together with great effect. Now my third point is that interfaith work is imperative in strengthening our communities. It builds on the same principle and the simple principle that people often act out their faith by giving back to society. That people who do God do good. That's not to say that people of no faith don't do God. But when you look around our communities you will see the impact that faith groups have had whether it's the estimated 100 million hours churchgoers volunteer each year, or the fact that Muslims give more to charity each year than any other group, or the endless good deeds motivated by seva or mitzvah. For a very long time I have believed that we should celebrate the fact that doing good work is central to many of our faiths, and that in fact we should harness it, and so we have done with programs like Near Neighbours, A Year of Service and Now Together in Service. All of these are founded not only on the fact that people who do God do good, but the fact that faith groups have more of an impact on their communities when they join forces. And that was the principle that I developed in opposition. We named the program Active Faith, it later became Near Neighbours 
and it is running incredibly successfully today. Using existing structures, harnessing the good works that are central to all our faiths and making a big difference in communities. And that interfaith aspect is more important than ever. In an increasingly diverse transient society where people have increasingly busy lives, faith remains a constant, a force for good, and even more impactful when it is multi-faith. Now, if we can take this approach to tackling persecution abroad, to confronting hatred at home, and to strengthening our society, there is another fortunate byproduct: proof that there is no inevitable clash between faiths, that they are not on some sort of collision course, and that the presence of other faiths doesn't come at the expense of your own. I have often argued, and I said this during my speech at the Vatican nearly two years ago, that working alongside Christians, Jews, Hindus and Sikhs doesn't make me less of a Muslim, it makes me more of one. And that is why for me Pope Benedict's visit to the Blue Mosque in Istanbul in 2006 was such a symbolic moment. It's why I chose to send my daughter, a Muslim, to a Christian school with a convent attached next door when she was young. The fact is, the rejection of another faith just reveals a weakness in your own. Because just as the bully bullies because he or she is insecure, so too the state groups or community suppresses because it fears a threat to its own identity. And as Hillary Clinton put it, after the tragic murder of US Ambassador Stevens in Libya last year, withstanding threats and insults are a sign that one's own faith is unshakable. And there are countless examples of the persecution of the other in order to protect identity. Why did the Nazis want to exterminate Jews? In part because they feared they polluted their purity, their Aryan identity. Why did the communist regimes crack down on religion? Because they wanted to eliminate all compelling loyalties and remove all ideological opposition. And why today do we see in some Muslim-majority countries extremists turning on their minorities because they think it makes them stronger or more powerful in their Islamic identity to reject the other. So once again we need to show that acceptance of the other proves not that you are weak but that you are unshakable in your own identity. Interfaith action and the good it brings makes this case more powerfully than any speech can. So in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that we're entering into an era when this is crucial. There was a slogan during the Arab uprising, Muslim Christians, one hand. It rang throughout the walls of Tahrir Square and it still resonates today. And let's extend that sentiment to all faiths and let's take it to all continents so that people of all religion join hands as a global congregation with a mutual mission to topple intolerance to build better societies, to enable people to live out their lives free from hatred. That is the interfaith imperative, one which requires action and dialogue. And there will be no more effective way of confronting the gravest issue we face today and no finer tribute to the papacy of the Pope Emeritus, Pope Benedict XVI. Thank you.